We're going to read the chapter. I'm going to read the first three verses of Isaiah chapter 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. In the last chapter, Isaiah leaves the reader with the impression that, that it's Jehovah God. It is the Lord God who's been speaking. And now the voice changes. And the voice that we hear is the voice of God's servant, of God's Messiah. As a matter of fact, remember in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, if you just go back just a few chapters, it says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the Gentiles. But now we come to the heart of Isaiah's prophecy. In chapter 61, we find a description of the Messiah's ministry and then his anointing and his assignments. In chapter 62, we see the result of Messiah's ministry. It's Israel's restoration. And in chapter 63, the day of vengeance is announced and it contains a prayer and praise of the believing remnant of the nation. If Christians are to be noted by anything, if the characteristics of Christians should be noted by anything, it should be by the fruit of the Spirit and the character of Christ. Matter of fact, when I was preparing this message, as I often do, I started thinking about food. And then I started thinking about ice cream. Now, you don't have to shout it out if you don't want to, but I'm going to ask you a question. What's your favorite ice cream? Okay. Anyone else? Chocolate? See, cherry vanilla is good, but none of you have said pistachio. Pistachio clearly is better than all of those. Spumoni might even be better than that. But you know what no one said? No one said, well, I like habanero ice cream. Or... I like sour cream and chives ice cream. Doesn't that sound disgusting? I mean, you would think that ice cream, any kind of ice cream would be good. But habanero would be bad. Sour cream and chives would be bad. Buttermilk ice cream would be really bad. If Christianity were ice cream, you know what flavor it would be? It would be joy. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16, it says, Rejoice always. Another translation, 
always be joyful. When Paul was writing to the Philippians, he found himself in a, in a very difficult position. He found himself in prison, and yet he said, I count it all joy. And we sometimes look at the Bible and we think that Christianity, and particularly joy, is a cartoon characteristic that is something that is embraced by Homer Simpson's neighbor, Oakley Doakley. But there's something phony about it. There's something superficial about it. But real Christians and real Christianity truly is marked by joy. Dostoevsky once wrote, Man is fond of counting his troubles, but he's not fond of counting his joys. If he counted them as he ought to, he would see that every lot has enough happiness provided for it. We live in a world that's characterized by despair. We live in a world even where Christians find themselves despairing and manipulated by their emotions. We find ourselves in deep, dark places and our emotions tell us certain things that may or may not be true, but they manipulate us. They tell us that our spouse doesn't really love us or appreciate us, that our boss is just using us, that the world is exploiting us, and that God is distant and far away. Ours is a smiling despair. We have a half smile softened by convenience. We try to put on a happy face, and so we go to a happy restaurant and we buy a happy meal thinking that it will take us to our happy place. But Jesus came to bear our guilty despair far away from us. Jesus came to bear our guilty despair and then replace it with what the Bible calls unspeakable joy and full of glory. And he does it by himself. And he does it with God's spirit. And he does it with God's word. And he does it in the most remarkable way. He does it by preaching. And so in this chapter, we get a glimpse into salvation and the promised Savior and the Messiah's kingdom. And it begins with the Savior's anointing. Look at verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because... The Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, this passage sounds completely familiar to most of you, doesn't it? Because it's repeated in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, this is the passage of Scripture that Jesus first preached from when he began his ministry. We learn something about the identity of the servant and the anointing of the servant. Look what it says. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. That word anointed, by the way, is from a root word, Mashiach, where we get the word Messiah. And so when it says the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has Mashah, anointed, that's the word, it's the clue. The word anointed is the clue, and the New Testament is the proof that the speaker is none other than Jesus Christ. The Savior would be anointed by God's 
Holy Spirit. And by the way, all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned in this verse. The Father, who is the Lord, the Holy Spirit, and the Savior. You'll remember in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord came upon the prophets in the Old Testament. And the Holy Spirit would come upon the prophets. Prophets like Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah. The Lord, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon Joshua and Moses. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon Samson. The Spirit of the Lord would come upon the prophets like Elijah and Elisha. And the power of God was present and The power of the Holy Spirit was present, but it was always limited. The Messiah would receive the Spirit with with no boundaries, with no limits, without measure. As a matter of fact, Paul, writing in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, would say, For in Him, speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus, dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily, In the New Living Translation, Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ the fullness of God lives in a human body. Jesus. As a matter of fact, Peter writes that the prophets themselves were perplexed by these passages. Because Isaiah has talked about the sufferings of the Messiah in chapter 53. But he talks about the glory of the Messiah that would follow. And so Peter writes the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. As a matter of fact, if you turn quickly in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, verse 16. I'd like to read the passage that Jesus reads from. In Luke chapter 4. Four, verse 16 through 21, it says, So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and he was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, the same book, the same scroll that we've been studying from. Now, can you imagine, you now know that there are 66 chapters, and so as he unravels the scroll... He unravels the scroll, and the scroll would have been about 80 feet long. He keeps unrolling it and unrolling it, and he comes to chapter 61. He found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, period. Now, you know that there's more to the passage, but he stops there. It says, then he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And here's his sermon. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The end. I know what you're you're going, man, wouldn't it be great if Gino had a sermon like that? Wouldn't it be great if I says, okay, this is what it says. This is what it means. And this is how it applies to your life. The end. 
today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Do you understand what Jesus is saying? He's the suffering servant. He is the Messiah. He is the one that, that Isaiah prophesied. He stops just short of the phrase, the day of vengeance, because that day would not come until the time of the tribulation. And by the way, he would have to unroll the scroll, two more chapters, to Isaiah chapter 63. And we're going to be getting to that in the not-too-distant future, where there's a description of a coming tribulation. Jesus said to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, or the time of acceptance. This was that time. We continue to live in that time. It's a time of grace. It's a time of opportunity. Jesus claims to be the Messiah. And look what he does. Look at how he defines his ministry. If you look carefully, and you, and you, if we were to ask Jesus the question, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm the Messiah. And how would you characterize your, your, your ministry? What is your ministry going to be like? Listen to what he says. I help people in trouble. I help people who are in bondage. I help people with a broken heart. I help people who have a conspicuous lack of joy in their lives. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He's anointed me, look what it says, to preach good news to the poor. Now, keep in mind, keep in mind, who is writing this scroll? Isaiah. What is the year? It's about 720 B.C. 700 years before the coming of Jesus, the people in the world were living in a troubled world and they needed hope. If you fast forward, like I've been telling you in almost every chapter, 180 years, the children of Israel will find themselves next to the Euphrates in Babylon in captivity. They will need good news. And he says to preach good tidings to the poor. So what is the good news? Again, Ray Ortland writes, and I love this, he says, the gospel, the good news, announces that Christ has won the victory over everything that's against us. If you've committed what you think is the unpardonable sin, if you're broken by your failures, if you fear that your chance at life is over, Jesus announces to you a life so new that if you understood what he's saying, you'll have difficulty believing that it's yours. He's come to a world filled with darkness and despair. He has come to a world filled with broken-hearted people. By the way, do you know anyone, anyone at all, who's never had their heart broken? Just think about yourself. Think about everyone that you know. Bob Dylan used to sing a song in the, in the late 80s. He sang a song that said, Broken bottles, broken plates, broken switches, broken gates, broken dishes, broken parts. Streets are filled with broken hearts, broken words, 
never meant to be spoken. Everything is broken. That's exactly the good news. The gospel is Jesus coming into a world and taking everything that's broken and putting it back together. As a matter of fact, the gospel is Christ on the cross canceling all of your debts and every Jew reading this particular passage in the time of Isaiah. And even if you fast forward to the time of the Babylonian captivity. Every Jew reading this passage would have been familiar with Moses and would have been familiar with the writing of Moses and would have been familiar with the year of Jubilee. Are you guys familiar with the year of Jubilee? The year of Jubilee is that every 50th year, all debts are canceled. All property reverts back to its original owner. At the 50th year, if you owe anyone anything at all, guess what? All debts canceled. Anyone who owes anyone anything, it goes away. You can imagine why it was called the year of Jubilee. Can you imagine in the year of Jubilee, if you you go um, in year 48 and you've got all of your Israeli credit cards and you go, wow, I'm going to go deep in debt because I just know in two years from now, it's going to be the year of Jubilee. And then that way I... I get all of it canceled. I know some of you are thinking, you know, wouldn't it be great if the rapture came and like, you know, my credit cards are like totally, fully maxed out. You know, I have a $10,000 credit on this one and a $10,000 on that one and $10,000 and woohoo, Jesus comes back and they're all gone. Everyone reading this passage would have thought about the year of Jubilee. But when the Messiah comes, all sin is canceled. The sin is canceled. And everything that sin has done. The poor aren't simply those who have this world's riches. The poor are those who are poor in spirit. These are the ones who are impoverished before the Lord. The poor in spirit is utterly helpless before the Lord. Remember in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are the people who are willing to admit their inability to face life or face death or face eternity apart from God, recognizing their sin. The poor in spirit cultivate an attitude of humility, knowing that he or she is no better than anyone else. And so when he says he's the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings, the good news to the poor. This is the good news for for those people who are willing to hear the good news. The, The good news never becomes quite so delicious. Unless you're living in a life of darkness and emptiness and despair. Have you noticed that ice cream never, ever tastes quite so good as with cake? Have you ever seen a child eat ice cream? You know, they eat the ice cream. They're enjoying the ice cream. And they're enjoying it. And then they come to that last bite. And it's just sort of like a transformation takes place in their countenance. They just go. They just sort of look at it, you know, with that look that this is the last bite. And after this, it's all gone. And it goes to their mouth. And they eat it. And that half-hearted smile. 
the poor the poor are those people who are willing to cultivate in their minds the fact that something is desperately wrong. Jesus came to preach the salvation of God to the poor. The idea being those who knew that they needed to be saved. And look what else it says. He comforts the brokenhearted. If you're, again, one of those people who underlines your Bible, that's one I would underline. He comforts the brokenhearted. In every generation, we experience brokenness and we experience grief and we experience loneliness. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 17, it says that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah, the prophet, saying he himself took our infirmities. He himself experienced or bore our sicknesses. The Messiah comes and he preaches the good news and he does so in order to provide comfort to the brokenhearted. When Jesus began his ministry, he immediately went to work on the people who needed help. By the way, Jesus continues his healing ministry to this day. Do you realize that any broken heart can be restored? Simply by the touch of Jesus. Do you remember what I said to you earlier? Have you ever met a single person who didn't have a broken heart? Have you ever met a single person who wasn't hurt or injured in some way? Jesus longs to bind up and heal the brokenhearted. That's the idea. Some of you might be thinking, my heart is shattered, my heart is broken, and I need help. You wouldn't be the first person whoever prayed that prayer. In Psalm 34, verse 18, the psalmist wrote, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord is near to those who have a broken heart, and He saves such as have a contrite spirit. Do you realize that in direct proportion to your broken heart, you invite the presence of God and, and the presence of the Messiah? In direct proportion to the hurt and the brokenness and the pain and the shattered circumstances of your life, you're inviting Jesus to draw near to you because that's exactly what He wants to do. He wants to touch you and He wants to heal you and He wants to bind up your broken heart. And look what else it does. He releases captives and frees prisoners. This is a nightmare verse to every police officer I know. What? Jesus is going to spring all the criminals? No. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean that Jesus is willing to let the criminals go free from their prison. What is he talking about? It speaks of the prison of sin and the certainty of death. We are prisoners of sin. And we are prisoners of death. A few weeks ago, I did a funeral. And as is my custom, I rode to the gravesite in the hearse. And I had an opportunity to speak to the driver. And I tell him my favorite story, which is the very first time I ever did a funeral. And when I was very young in my very first funeral, I said 
to the guy driving the hearse, I, I said, you know, I've never really ridden in a hearse before. And the guy, he looked at me real soberly and he goes, it's always better when you ride up front the first time. Yeah, that's the laugh that I was looking for. And we were talking about funerals and the difficulties associated with funerals. And he told me that he recently buried a young lady who was tragically killed. She was having a rehearsal dinner. It was Friday night. And she was celebrating with the wedding party. And she was celebrating with her friends. She had not been drinking. She was not drunk. She was not driving drunk. But she left late from the wedding rehearsal. And as she was driving home, a drunk driver hit her and killed her. And the windshield was shattered. And her wedding dress was in the back seat. And it was raining. And it was snowing. And the rain and the snow completely soaked her wedding dress. She was supposed to be married the very next day. And heartbroken, the family wanted to bury her in the soaked and soiled and ruined wedding dress. And so he was telling me about the difficulties associated with that. And what do you do? And how do you do it? And, and how do you deal with the grief? And how do you deal with the pain? And how do you deal with the horror? And how do you deal with what seems like the inequity and the unfairness of it all? The human race has been taken hostage by sin. The human race has been taken hostage by death. Every human being sins. Every human being can't help but sin. Every human being dies. And there's nothing we can do to stop it. The people we love will die. Every single person that you know will die. And the Savior came to set us free from the bondage of sin and death. And there is no human being who has the energy or the power or the ability to set himself or to set herself free. Only God can do it. Only God can redeem people. Only He can save us. Only He can save us from our own wickedness and selfishness. And so He comes to set the captive free. God has chosen to do this in the Messiah. He's chosen to do this in Jesus. God himself has paid the ransom for man's release. The ransom, the ransom was a life for a life. He gives the life of his son so that every person might experience freedom from sin and from death. And as a result, every captive can be redeemed through the blood of the Savior. Who died for the sins of the human race. So Paul writes in Romans chapter 3 verse 23. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. He will come and he will do this. And look what it says in verses 2 and 3. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. And the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To console those who mourn in Zion. To give them 
beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called the trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. In order to understand that passage, you have to understand that the acceptable year of the Lord refers to the day of acceptance in God and in the Messiah. It's the day of salvation. It's the day of grace. It's the announcement that God is willing to forgive you in the Messiah and reconcile you to himself. People often ask me the question, well, how did people get saved before Jesus ever appeared? 700 years before Jesus ever appeared, Isaiah is giving a promise that if you'll place your confidence and trust in the coming Messiah, he will redeem you. And then it says, and the day of vengeance. Well, what does that mean? Let me help you with it. Jesus will fulfill every messianic promise. He just won't fulfill them all at once. There'll be a day of salvation. And there'll be a day of judgment. Jesus alludes to it in the New Testament. You've all read it for yourself. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 10, remember when Jesus said, And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. In Luke chapter 12, verse 49, Jesus says, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you remember Matthew 23, Serpents. Brood of vipers. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? There were glimpses and warnings. But the day of vengeance and the day of judgment has not yet occurred. And to comfort all who mourn. I want you to just think for a moment. When does a person mourn? When are you most likely to mourn? Isn't it when you've lost something? Isn't it when you're bruised? That you're physically hurt, you're mentally hurt, you're emotionally hurt, you're spiritually hurt. There's some bruising, there's some deep wound, there's some deep wound. Mourning can be caused by all kinds of different things. You, you can experience a deep wound because of illness. You can experience a deep wound because of disability or injury or disease or pain or financial hardship or marital problems or the loss of a loved one or unemployment. There's all kinds of reasons why, why we might mourn. But the Lord Jesus wants to comfort those who are burdened under the weight of their suffering. 
The reason why this becomes such an important thing for each and every one of us is because sometimes we kid ourselves. We, we, we hurt so bad and we are, we're so bruised, we're so wounded that we think that there is no comfort available, that God isn't available, that Jesus isn't available. Even today, Jesus will comfort any who turn to him in their pain and in their suffering. And if you turn to Jesus in your pain and in your suffering. He wants to make a provision for you. And by the way, he gives two great promises, two wonderful promises to those who are going through hard times, for those who are going through deep sorrow. And look what it says. They will be given the clothing of beauty, gladness, joy, praise, instead of sackcloth and ashes. He transforms ashes into beauty, sorrow into joy, despair into praise. And again, he likens it to a garment. I was listening just very briefly. I didn't get a chance to hear the whole message. I was listening to Chuck Swindoll on the radio and he made the most amazing statement. He said something to the effect that the wind blows to the east and the wind blows to the west and you can set a boat into the ocean and the boat will go in whatever direction that the wind blows but there is there's a way a way that you can get into a boat and you can set the sail in such a way that it doesn't matter which way the wind blows you can determine the direction that the boat is going to go. I, I suspect that there's the same kind of an illustration to an airplane. It doesn't matter which way the wind is blowing. If you're, if you're, if you're flying into the wind or if you're flying with the wind, there seems to be a mechanism where you can, where the, the wind isn't your enemy, but it becomes your friend. And you have a choice. You really do have a choice. You don't have to go in the direction that the wind is blowing. You have an opportunity to take off the garment of sorrow and put on the garment of joy and praise. In John chapter 15, verse 11, Jesus gives a clue to his disciples. He says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. You see, do you know what joy is? It isn't just happiness. Joy is the settled certainty that God is in charge and God is on the throne. You have peace with God and you have the peace of God. Happiness is dependent upon the circumstances. Joy is dependent upon your heart. And look what else it says. They will be given a name, a testimony of righteousness. In verse 3, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. For those of you unfamiliar with, with this book of Isaiah, at the beginning of the book, he talks about them being an unfruitful plant, but now they're a mighty oak. The planting of the Lord. 
note so that he could be glorified. And then he gives a series of assurances. Look what it says. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. And they shall repair the ruined cities. The desolations of, look at this, many generations. Do you know what is happening? Isaiah is giving a sneak peek into Messiah's future kingdom. What will life be like when the Messiah comes? What will life be like when God restores his kingdom? In the future, the children of Israel will rebuild long destroyed cities. In a sense, God promises to restore everything that sin has ruined. Jerusalem is destroyed. The surrounding areas of Judea have been destroyed. In history, the children of Israel will return from across the Euphrates. They will go back into the land during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And they will begin to rebuild the cities. And by the way, those cities were destroyed. Today, today on the 60th anniversary of the modern state of Israel, we've witnessed cities being rebuilt. All the way from Mount Hermon, all the way south to Elat in the desert, cities are, are springing up out of nowhere. And that's the metaphor of rebuilding. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. That's what Jesus does. That's what Messiah does. Sin has taken its toll on, on many of your lives. Sin has ruined your marriage and ruined your heart and ruined your circumstances. Sin has taken its toll. But guess what? And they shall repair the ruined cities and the desolations of many generations. In a very real sense, that's exactly what Messiah does. He repairs. He restores. Everything that sin has ruined. He does it initially in his earthly ministry. He rises from the dead. He will return to judge the living and the dead. But there will come a time, and you know that this is true, when heaven and earth will pass away. And the Lord God will create a new heaven and a new earth. And everything that sin has ruined will be made whole and well. The nation is restored. And again, I think it's a token of, of a deeper restoration. And look what else it says in verse 5. Strangers shall stand and feed your flocks, and the sons of the foreigners shall be your plowmen and your vine dressers. Isaiah is envisioning a, a future in in which the Gentiles serve Israel. That's who the Gentiles are. They're foreigners. They're, think about this. The Messiah establishes his kingdom, the root of righteousness. The government is established in Jerusalem. The foreigners, the Gentiles, feed the flocks. They plow the fields. They tend the vineyards. It would appear that the position of authority and management will be given to God's people in God's kingdom. Believe it or not, even though this might come as a shock to you, you'll have a job. Hey, wait a minute, I thought I was going to die and go to heaven and I would never have to work ever again. No. Wrong! God's created you in such a way that he's, He has gifts and callings. 
As a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul gives us a clue. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that you will judge angels? How much more than the things that pertain to this life? You're not just going to die and go to heaven and that's it. I know this is going to come as a shock to you. God's going to put you in a position of authority and responsibility. What? 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 Me? Yeah, you. As a matter of fact, in Isaiah chapter 61, look at verse 6. But you shall be named the priests of the Lord. They shall call you the servants of our God. You shall eat the riches of the Gentiles, and in, the, in their glory you shall boast. We have two pictures here. The people of God, the Jews, restored in Messiah's kingdom, and all of the people of God. Do you remember in the Torah, in the first five books of Moses, where Moses is speaking to the children of Israel, and he, he refers to them as, as a kingdom, or a, a nation of priests, if you will. Holy to God. The writer of Hebrews repeats this, that, that you are priests and holy to God in Messiah's kingdom. The nation will be a priestly nation. In Messiah's kingdom, everyone who know and love God are priests to God. God's people will be given a special name. And it would appear that this special name isn't restricted to the Jews. I think it applies to both Jew and Gentile in Christ. And look at verse 7. Instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. And instead of confusion, they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore, in the land they shall possess double, everlasting joy. <laughs> there it is. Everlasting joy shall be theirs. By the way, when it says instead of your shame, you shall have double honor. Do you know what the double honor makes reference to? It's the double portion. It's the right of the firstborn. In Jewish culture and society, there were 12 tribes. Does anyone remember the name of the oldest person in the 12 tribes? It was Simeon. He was the firstborn. But he lost the position of the firstborn because of his wickedness. He became disqualified. But look what it says. Instead of your shame, you're going to be given a double honor. The idea is that the children of Israel who are taken captive and they find themselves in Babylon, they're weeping and they're crying. The nation is destroyed. The temple is destroyed. They wonder if they have a life. They wonder if they have a future. And the Lord says, guess what? In Messiah's kingdom, you'll be given the portion of the firstborn, the right of inheritance. Reproach will be replaced with honor. And throughout the generations, God's people have shouldered enormous burden, enormous shame, and enormous reproach and persecution. On my program today, I was talking with the president and CEO of Open Doors, who is it's a ministry to the persecuted all around the world. The persecuted church in Korea, where Christians are killed on a daily basis and imprisoned on a daily basis. Saudi Arabia, Pakistan. There's so many countries where Christians experience profound persecution. But guess what? 
there's going to come a time when we will experience honor and joy. And look at verse 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery for burnt offering. I will direct their work in truth and will make with them an everlasting covenant. The Lord says he loves justice. And remember what justice is. Justice is giving to each and every person that which is their due. If God is a God of love, then he's also a God of justice. You have family and friends who have said to you, I believe that God's a God of love. And you would say, that's correct. You're absolutely right. God is a God of love. But have you ever read in Isaiah 61, 8 where it says, For I, the Lord, love justice. If the Lord God loves justice, if he, if he says, I hate robbery for burnt offering, here's what he's basically saying. He hates crime. And I'll direct their work in truth. God loves peace. Now think about this for a moment. In Messiah's kingdom, no crime. Messiah's kingdom, no criminals. There is justice. There is peace. There is security. Sorry, all of my law enforcement friends. You're going to be out of a job in the kingdom. And I know know what you're thinking. You wanted to be in Hawaii anyway under a waterfall. Oh, you know, it will be my job to pick the pineapples off the orchard. The Messiah will make an everlasting covenant with his people. When Jesus comes to the earth the first time, he establishes an eternal relationship with God. In Messiah's kingdom, God's people will be filled with God's spirit and God's word. His laws and commandments will be written on their hearts. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 10, the writer of Hebrews says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their mind and write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. And then look at verse 9. Their descendants shall be known among the Gentiles and their offspring among the people. All who see them will acknowledge them that the post- through their posterity, the, the Lord will be blessed. The idea, justice, peace, the Lord's people are honored. Right now, the Lord's people are dishonored. Sometimes they're persecuted. Sometimes they're driven into hiding and they have to bear the most unbearable things. But one day, the Lord's people will be honored. Did you ever see the movie Gladiator? There's an interesting scene in that movie where the hero Maximus is chided into attacking the emperor Commodus. And by the way, in real life, Commodus was killed by a gladiator. Commodus was, in ancient times, the the son of an emperor named Marcus Aurelius. But in this movie, the character Maximus is trying to avoid falling into the trap of being chided into fighting a fight that he's not quite prepared for. And Maximus has this great line in the movie. He says, the time for honoring yourself will soon be over. The time for this world Honoring itself will soon be over. The time 
for dishonoring Jesus will soon be over. There will come a time when all the world will acknowledge God's blessings through Israel's Messiah. All the persecution will disappear. And look what it says in verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. For He has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He's covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is a metaphor of conversion. From funeral to wedding. In our culture, when a man and a wife get married, typically, in our culture and society, where does a bride get her dress? She gets it herself, doesn't she? She goes out and she picks her dress. It's the bride's responsibility to get her dress. But in the Hebrew culture and society, it's very, very different. In the Old Testament, it used the metaphor of marriage to to describe Jehovah's relationship with Israel. They were married on Mount Sinai. The Lord gave the law through Moses, but the nation was unfaithful, sought other gods, served other gods. Jeremiah, he gets a divorce. The Lord calls Israel a spiritual adulterer. The nation is sent into captivity, but even the captivity doesn't cure her of her plagues. Israel is called a forsaken wife, but in in Messiah's kingdom, Israel and Judah come home. In Jewish culture, when an Israeli man, when a Hebrew man, when a Jewish man was getting married to his wife, He prepared her dress and he gave it to her on the day that they were to be married and she would wear it on. There was a week-long celebration, but on the day of the actual ceremony, the groom would give the dress to the bride. And now in the New Testament, you understand a little bit better when it says that he's prepared for himself a bride without spot or without wrinkle. You see, we as Christians are constantly worried, I messed up my dress. But it is Jesus who is the groomsman. And I know it's, it's, a little, it's a little difficult for men to think of themselves as a bride. So you can go ahead and think of yourself as a bridegroom, just like it says here, with a cool turban on your head. But the reason why this becomes important is because it's Jesus who gives you your wedding dress. It's Jesus who gives you a robe of righteousness. It's Jesus who covers you. Now you understand in the New Testament when he gives the parable of the wedding and he says, where's your garment? I didn't give you that garment. You see, people won't be invited to the wedding who haven't been given the garment. It is the groom who gives the garment to the bride. And the groom promises to give the garment to all who come to him. In the end, the citizens of Zion rejoice. They rejoice because they're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And look what it says for, as the earth brings forth its bud, as the garden gives the things that are sown in it to spring forth, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring forth before all the nations. Here's the idea. Just like dirt brings forth the flower, just like the garden brings forth vegetables and fruit, 
so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before the nations. The idea being all of those people in Messiah's kingdom experience joy and forgiveness and praise. And in that joy and forgiveness and praise, it becomes a testimony to all of the world that's watching. If Christianity were ice cream, the flavor would be pistachio, no, it would be joy. I'm going to read something to you. What's remarkable isn't simply what's said, but who said it. Listen carefully. Join the great company of those who make the barren places of life fruitful with kindness. Carry a vision of heaven in your hearts, and you shall make your name, your college, the world correspond to that vision. Your success and happiness lie within you. External conditions are the accidents of life, its outer wrappings. The great enduring realities are love and service. Joy is the holy fire that keeps our purpose warm and our intelligence aglow. Resolve to keep happy and your joy and you shall form an invincible host against difficulty. You can experience joy. You can make the choice. Who said that? Helen Keller. She was deaf and blind. If ever there was a person who could have rejoiced in their victimhood, it was her. She takes two enormous disabilities, vision and hearing, the absolute lack of either one. And she enters into a deep, permanent, profound relationship of love and service and joy. Christians are to be marked by joy. Rejoice in the Lord. Despair is over. Joy has come. Rejoice in the Lord. Salvation has come. Rejoice in the Lord. The brokenhearted can have their broken heart mended, their wounds healed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for the promise of God. We thank you for the Messiah's anointing, the Messiah's, the Messiah's ministry. Lord, we know Jesus is in the business of binding up the brokenhearted and bringing comfort to those who find themselves in a place of mourning. Lord, I pray for each and every person within the sound of my voice, and I pray for each and every person who is here, that if they find themselves in that dark place, in that place of a profound lack of joy in their life, Lord, I pray that you would, that the God of hope would fill them with all joy and peace and believing and that they would abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that you yourself, Lord, would heal them and restore their broken heart.
in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.